I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. This is Mike. So this is an intro to the intro. (laughs) Yeah, this is a pre-intro to the intro. Our podcast is a living, breathing, evolving thing. And when we released the episode you're about to listen to, we got some feedback from our community that a lot of people loved it and it has been shared widely. And I will tell you, this episode has been the most downloaded episode of all time on yeah, the Kate and Mike show. The, yeah. Our, our downloads are going up as we're quitting the podcast. <laughs> we're not quitting. We're bringing it to a close <laughs> for this time. Anyway, okay. the feedback was really important. And it was it was multifaceted. But the main piece that I really wanted to address is the fact that when we asked our guest, Dr. Zach Bush, who will intro in a moment in the other intro about the disparities between the way that COVID is affecting the black community much more intensely than it is other communities of the black and indigenous as well and other communities of color. I felt like we didn't go deep enough in that moment, and I wanted to interrupt and challenge him to go deeper, and I didn't. And I take ownership of that, and I'm looking at my own stuff around that. But what was really important is that we address our community's concerns about it and move towards repair. So we asked Dr. Bush if he would be willing to come back to address that question, as well as a few others, and go deeper. And he also felt it was an incredibly important issue to address. So there is a part two of this episode. So if you're a huge Zach Bush fan, good news, there's more Mm -hmm. after the first two hours. And if you listen in and you have questions, that's great. Questions are an excellent place to start and you can listen through part two as well. I also want to say, and this applies to every single guest we've ever had on the podcast, the viewpoints and perspectives of the guests on the Kate and Mike show are not necessarily representative of Mike and my viewpoints and perspectives. I feel like that sort of goes without saying, but in the comments that that happened no, after the show, I think it's important to say. I think it's in I think it's just sometimes especially now we're in this like culture where people are canceled for making one mistake, etc., right? And so I think it's just not everyone sees eye to eye, which is life. And I feel like we forgot that along the way a little bit. But yes, it's like just because somebody has a belief that we've interviewed on the show does not mean we believe right along the same lines with them. Necessarily. So listen into part one and then you can go and listen to the bonus episode of part two where we go even deeper, especially around health inequity and how we can move towards equitable solutions that are really simple and available and accessible for all kinds of folks. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the show. Hi, welcome to the Kate and Mike show. This is Kate. This is Mike. We have... And welcome back to you repeat listeners. And welcome Look if you're that. here for the first time. So we have an episode I am so excited to share with you. I think it's also quite possibly the most important conversation we've had to date on the podcast especially because the information shared is so timely to the pandemic and to the global response, which is Mm -hmm. one of many possible responses. And perhaps based on the data revealed in this episode, you know, 
there are all sorts of different choices. And I think it's just important to know that. So this guest, Dr. Zach Bush, I heard a podcast that he was on the Rich Roll Show back in March, and the episode was called A Pandemic of Hope. And it was one of the most calming (laughs) conversations. Like, I just felt so calm listening to the incredibly grounded scientific evidence about viruses and the microbiome and glyphosate and toxins in our environment. And since then, I have gone very far down the rabbit hole of basically all the interviews I could possibly find with today's guest. So I'm really excited to be introducing you to him today. When Mike and I were mapping out the final episodes of the Kate and Mike show, we both agreed that if there were a single guest that we could have on in our final episodes, it would be Dr. Zach. So we're super psyched that he's here. Yes, it was. I'm so grateful he took two hours out. To, uh, I was talking to my mom this morning about because she's been listening to Zach Bush a lot because I've been telling her to go, Michelle. Yeah. And she was like, is this a two hour inter- breaking out? <laughs> yeah. I was like, is this a two hour interview with Zach? And, and I was like, yeah, it was two hours. Exactly. She goes, really? And I was like, yeah, she was really surprised. Because he answers questions very uniquely. I'll just leave it at that because you'll see if you have not heard him speak before. And it's an unusual cadence and a beautiful experience. Mm-hmm, it is. And Kate and I have listened to probably like 20 to 30 hours of podcasts since we first listened to his episode back in March. And to second what Kate said earlier, it was the most hopeful person that I've heard this entire time since March. And that's why I have continually consume so much content from him. But not hopeful from a, like a spiritual bypassing place, no. not even hopeful from a like positive psychology optimism place, like actually hopeful and helpful from a an evidence based place. Yes. Though he's obviously a really spiritual guy. Right. It's like facts, right? It's like just the facts, man. It, and yeah, in this day and age, it's like facts. Is this true? Is this yeah, not weird. true? And yeah. there's so much that we see on a daily basis that it's like we're questioning whether it's true or not true. And I would say you and I were talking about this earlier. It's like when he was first speaking, we could feel like in our body that like, oh, this makes complete sense. And he's going to talk about tox- tox- toxicity, toxicity that happens inside of the environment and in our world in this episode. And so what I have been able to kind of put together in my own theories, I'll just put it like that. I like this is not proven what I've put together, but like how much that impacts the rest of our life. And you'll kind of hear a little bit more about that as we go into this episode today. And just so you know, he is going to share some things that you may not have heard before. And he's going to share a different perspective on things than you might be hearing in the mainstream media. Please stay open. If it challenges a belief that you've held or something that you're hearing somewhere else, stay open and just say, huh, what if this were true? And then feel free to just, you know, (laughs) come on down the rabbit hole with us and and do your own research and learn more. But I just want you to know it also may push your buttons, some of it. And I think that's a good thing. Like, I I really think we need to be aware of cognitive dissonance and the tendency to stop listening to things that challenge our beliefs. And I think we also need to be aware that there is no ultimate truth. And so holding multiple things true at the same time and being open to different perspectives is 
critical. And that's what I loved about our former guest, Valerie Carr, in her book, you know, See No Stranger. So please just stay in that place of wonder. And if you stay in that place of wonder, get ready to have your mind blown. I would say since we have been listening to Zach, that is what has happened to my life. We talk about him since all the time. <laughs> yeah, all the time. And we introduce him to people all the time. But I've been holding back because what I wanted to do was send an episode out around to everyone we knew, including with, you. Yeah, with him. With us yeah. and him so that we could really ask him the questions that you know were sort of burning for us. And I'm so grateful. And it's created that to what you said about the state of wonder. It has created that space that I have found actually in that in this transition that we've been going through as a global entity with COVID and all of everything that's happening right now. It's like how, what's the purpose of all of this? What are we actually doing here? How do we move forward as a, as a community together? Because that is what is happening, right? And this is not Zach. This is just something I've been thinking a lot about with all of the stuff going on right now. And we're having here in the United States, we're in a very intense situation until November. But it's like what is happening now is somewhat forcing us to come together as communities, societies with people of completely different thoughts. I mean, process. I think that's the invitation. Yeah. If we, if we want to. to. Yeah, exactly. Let's um, uh, read okay. his bio and let the listeners listen in. Okay, so get ready. Zach Bush, MD, is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He's an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. Dr. Zach founded Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmer's Footprint, which we contribute to monthly, we recommend you do too, to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. His passion for education reaches across many disciplines, including topics such as the role of soil and water ecosystems in human genomics, immunity, and gut-brain health. His education has highlighted the need for a radical departure from chemical farming and pharmacy, and his ongoing efforts are providing a path for consumers, farmers, and mega industries to work together for a healthy future for people and planet. So with that, we give you Dr. Zach Bush. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you so much for being here. What a pleasure to be here with the two of you. <laughs> well, so I just have to say, we're both a little bit nervous. I will just say, like, that doesn't happen very often. No. <laughs> and, uh, we have, you know, we do this, like, a lot. And uh, I don't think I have ever listened to so many podcast interviews with the same person as <laughs> I have. <laughs> Of yours, like, how did he say? I have never yeah. gone down, like, I never have before gone to the podcast app and typed in somebody's name and just like listened to all the things. So, <laughs> I just want to start by saying thank you for being here. It's such a, you know, it's an honor. And I just, I love the way you think. And just, you've provided me a lot of peace and calm during this year. So, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. I second that entire thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's been nonstop. Zach Bush all the time. <laughs> Gladly okay. for it. So I want to start by asking you something that I've been curious about, which is, you know, you are doing a lot of things. And I wrote this book called Do Less. We talk <laughs> I saw that. I just looked up your book today and I was like, dang, I really need to sit down with this woman. She needs to give me a couple of pointers in life. My wife would be very happy if I would just listen to Kate. <laughs> well, I was just curious, you know, between Ion Biome and Farmer's Footprint and, you know, your clinic and 
all of the things that you're doing and, you know, I see you doing interviews a lot, obviously, you know, the moment is ripe for that. Like what sort of support structures do you have in place to help you with all your companies? And then also how do you set boundaries for yourself around your work? And maybe you don't, I don't know, but so that you don't overwork (laughs) because when the mission is so big and so urgent, I'm just like curious how you turn it off. That's great. Yeah, I I mean, how you do a lot of stuff is you have a lot of amazing people around you. And so I'm surrounded by some of the most, you know, heart centered, driven and, you know, purposeful people on the planet. And it's really a joy. So my staff across all my companies, you know, encompasses about 70 full time staff and another, you know, 30 or 40 part time people around the country, and then another 30 or 40 sales reps on the ground and stuff. So when you get up to, you know, over 100 people working on purpose towards different goals, it's pretty extraordinary what happens in a day or a week. And it's, you know, gotten to be my point of real honor to be at a, you know, the tip of the spear of a lot of capable of people doing really beautiful work for the planet and people. And so it's allowed me to, you know, think very broadly, but, you know, to, in full disclosure, none of this was my plan. Like this was all, you know, I, I'm not sure any of us really have free will in the end. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion maybe at some point, but I was very much on a very positive track in academia 10 years ago. I was, you know, cruising. I'd been chief resident and I was already you know, board certified twice and really enjoying my cancer research. I was developing novel chemotherapy from vitamin A and, you know, literally my mentors were like grooming me for, you know, chair of medicine someday, you know, and I just felt like I was cruising, like I was the man. Of course, they were paying me about, you know, half as much as a McDonald's manager. But when you're in academia and they let you walk through marbled halls and all of that, you feel special even if they don't pay you accordingly. And so um, you, you feel awesome. And and you feel so cool in that white coat and your stethoscope and you cruise around the halls and and there's something really you know incredible about being a doctor in that you are constantly at this point of especially when you're in hospital medicine you're constantly at this life and death kind of barometer so everything has an intensity to it everything has you know a distinct sense of import uh, that is hard to get outside of that world and so I was unbeknownst to me very much steeped in a drug environment I was drugged with my own story with my own you know, gravitas, my own knowledge base and, you know, all of this. And so I was in a literal physical stupor. I was majorly depressed at the time. I didn't know that for quite some time. I was very familiar with depression, obviously treated a ton of it in clinics, but more than that, like my in-laws and everything else struggles through that. I had seen a lot of it and it was just like an interesting journey of seeing on one side, the world wanting you to think you're perfect, you're on the track. And on the other side, your soul is collapsing. Like you can't find your purpose. You don't know why you're here. You don't know why you're jumping through the hoops. And so if I had seen your book at that time, I would have been like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen because it, clearly you have to work 120 hours a week to do important things. And I was working myself into the dust. Like it was intense. And part of my work was to raise kids. And I have two great kids that I I love to death. And so I would, you know, get up at 
crack of dawn or before dawn, run to the hospital, put in a 12, 14 hour shift, run home so I could eat dinner with the kids, read to them and play with them and throw them around on the couch for an hour until they were exhausted. And then I'd stick them in bed and my daughter would be talking a mile a minute. Just she's a little jabber box and just talking and talking. And like, I'm like, this girl's never going to fall asleep. And then she would just like mid sentence suddenly like fall asleep and fall over in bed and cuddle up and go to sleep with me. And, and there's this pattern of life where you figure out survival in 120 hours a week of anything seems reasonable because there's actually like 168 hours in a week or something. So there's still plenty of time in there for sleep. And so you're cruising along and you're like, you know, really doing it right, you feel like. And then suddenly the wheels come off and your whole life deconstructs. And so that's what happened to me actually almost exactly 10 years ago. And in, in by 2009, it was certainly falling apart. But by February of 2010, it was like, you know, hitting a brick wall and everything fell apart. Like uh, it, it was, you know, things that were completely seemingly out of my control were falling apart. Like the university lost funding from the NIH. We'd been funded since 1969 with our clinical research center, lost funding there. And so it was just like all of these massive cataclysmic events that just started slamming doors on what I thought was, you know, a super successful career in the making. And suddenly at the end of 17 years, journey of trying to be you know this academic superstar at a whole house mortgage worth of school debt by this time I was suddenly faced with the reality of I think I was going down the wrong path and that's a very good opportunity for self-destructive thought processes there and that came on me when I was in a depressed state and so I give you all that background to a simple question of like how are you doing right now what are you doing to balance all these things and the answer is over the last 10 years I've figured out essentially exactly what your book I'm sure says which is uh, beautiful truth that if you find yourself being the necessary producer in your life, you're probably not being a receiver and you're not ready to receive from the world and universe around you. And I can tell you that there's no amount of effort that you can put in intellectually or from a learning standpoint that can allow you to be in a flow state. You will always be chasing the wind if you feel like you are the producer that needs to go and create that future for yourself. And so I find great danger in all of these, you know, intention boards and people putting together their dream board and all of this stuff, which is now you have to feel like you have to go out and create that. And if you don't hit those marks, you're somehow failing. Whereas if you woke up with the attitude of a wildflower in a meadow at 12,000 feet in that magical zone right before you hit kind of you know, the end of the, the tundra there. And you're just like, you're the first living life form as you come from air down to crystalline snow covered mountains. And then suddenly there's that first meadow and there's these little tiny wildflowers that are just exploding with life and beauty. And they have absolutely no responsibility other than to just being there and be beautiful. And nobody is going to see that flower. No human is going to go up and touch that space. No bird is going to fly high enough to go see that flower. And yet if you're blessed enough to do a hike like that and to stumble upon a meadow like that, you realize that nature is doing something glorious without any sense of expectation that anybody would see it, without any expectation that anybody would appreciate the accomplishments of that little flower in the field. But that flower is so damn on purpose and so fulfilled by being 
in a biophotonic relationship between sunshine and a dynamic microbiome soil that's rich with every nutrient that this earth would provide for life to spring forth. And that flower sits in this dynamic, magic, miracle spinning space of light turning into particle form and particle being charged by the biophotonics and then creating something beautiful. That is how we will be extremely productive without any need for finding the boundaries, for finding you know the to-do list that best fits us and all that is if we really reach a B state, if we reach, you know, maybe that's, uh, that's not just figurative, maybe if you can be a bumblebee and reach that bumblebee state, if you are B, then there is no concern that you're going to screw up the balance piece. You know, am I being a good dad right now? That's always a concern. My kids are all grown up and they, I'm sure, don't think of me at all. But at least a couple of times a day, I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't really reached out to my kids. And when I do, I'm not really sure how to support them right. And, you know, and, and they're, of course, like being the flower over there. And I'm like feeling some responsibility to that flower. And they're beautiful. And there's nothing I could do to perfect their beauty any more than they are. And yet, the world would have us build these to-do lists, build these self-expectations that would allow us to sense failure even when we are being insanely successful on all of the important levels. So sorry about the, the rambling, meandering road there, I suppose, but I hope I answered your question. It was great. <laughs> that was perfect. We did. So I almost never planned questions, but we actually planned them out yeah. and, and wrote them down because given our experience of listening to you, we were like, we're going to get in about three. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, you haven't asked one yet. And what are we, half an hour in? (laughs) Okay. So the next one that I for sure want to make sure that we address, which of course I have heard you talk about many times, both of us have, all three of us have, for those listening, our neighbor Sean is here also. (laughs) He's he's (laughs) listening. He's our spectator. This is the first time ever we've had a spectator. We've actually, we've never had had a viewer of our podcast before. Um, What is the deal with viruses and what is the deal with COVID? Like we just, I can't not ask that question. Yeah. So that was your last question. (laughs) 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 I think you only gave me two hours to talk. So, so the, uh, what, what the hell is a virus? That's a good question these days. So you know, my career has been really taking off on a vertical trajectory because nobody gave a crap about what a virus was six months ago. Can um, I, can, so Zach, it, can I stop you one second? Yeah. Because also, because I've heard this concept around COVID is a disease as well, right? Like I've heard people interchange this disease virus, mm. right? It's like, we have to stop this disease. Like we're quarantining because it stopped the disease is a thing I've heard many times in the media or maybe not media, but just things that I've listened to. So just to kind of maybe explain the differences to those as well. No, that's good framework. I'm glad you pointed that out because that word would not have occurred to me. So, yeah. So, I I mean, actually, that's the perfect place to start is that we we currently have a narrative going on in the the public that we have a global pandemic of uh, novel virus that's going through and, and causing death, you know, and so it's causing illness and death. And, and there was a concern early on that we would overwhelm hospital systems. And so we had to go through all of these drastic measures. Initially, it was so that we wouldn't have overwhelm hospital systems, you may recall. But the narrative changes every two to three weeks, because there's only so long you can listen to the same thing before your brain goes numb. And so they have to shift the narrative a little bit, just, you know, and take us on this path. And that's normal for anything. It doesn't matter if they're talking about the pandemic or they're talking about the upcoming elections. The narrative you'll watch always creep. 
And it's because they need to keep us in motion. Uh, and, and when I say they and us, I'm talking about anybody with, with an agenda needs to keep the audience in motion. And you guys asked, you know, before we started here, is there anything that you would just die if you had to answer again? Like, is there any like things you're so sick of answering? And of course, if there had been any of them, it would be about COVID. But the dialogue keeps changing. So the narrative around this and the fact that you bring up the word disease, not we're being told there's this disease spreading around the world. You know, so the narrative and, and the verbiage is important for us to keep up with because the lexicon is sneaky. The lexicon will slip us into ancient human behavior patterns that are very low vibration, very brainstem, fight or flight behaviors and it's driven by language and it's so subtle because language is so imbued with emotion and and we often don't realize that or you know as soon as you stop to think about it yeah that that word definitely can is associated with fear or love or joy but when you're in a common narrative and the common narrative is unfolding they dull you to that kind of rush of experience of that initial emotion and it becomes a behavior rather than an emotion an emotion lasts for about seven seconds it happens in a little tiny part of the brain called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is a tiny little little structure, the hippocampal formation. The hippocampus is actually where you create intense emotion. And around that, interestingly, is where you create memory. And so you got short-term memory and its ability to translate into long-term memory wrapped in the amygdala, which is where intense emotion happens. So this is where really the fear and, and lust and anger and all of these things really sit is in the amygdala. So you have this bizarre neurologic structure in the human, which is very unique, much different than other species in that we have integrated emotions with memory. And this means that we, we respond in a very set behavior when we start to get set into our old programming. We can get literally like somebody pushing the button and you have to replay the whole history of the fight or flight state of being human. And so what's happened on the planet right now is we've been told a narrative of a pandemic of a virus that's spreading around the world. And this taps into some very old science. This ignores the last 30 years of data in the microbiome and everything else, but it takes us back to this time where we thought that the human immune system's job is to sterilize the entire environment. And it's not by coincidence, if you can hear the background noise, that is a large military jet flying over, spraying something behind it right now. So there's an interesting interplay between our emotional experience. And, and I can get triggered by a plane flying over now, just aware of how much activity is going around me that is in this fight or flight mandate that we are at war with something. And we've been at war since we became human, really, right? And so it's, it's, if you look through human history, if there's one narrative that's always existed, we are at war. And interestingly, because of a global economy, it's gotten very complicated to fight wars to stimulate economies and the growth of empires. And so what we've done, I think, recently, brilliantly, is to turn our attention, that warlike mentality and the economic driver that war does, to a new war against the invisible of not terrorism anymore, but the invisible of this disease, this scary paradigm of viruses that can attack us anytime and can leap out. And the scariest thing is your enemy is probably your neighbor. Your enemy is probably your kid. So don't let your kids come over because they could be the enemy. And so you can see how the narrative of 20 years of 2000, you know, 9-11 marching at us with this sudden terrorism on our soils to the idea that there's terrorism in the air in the form of these invisible attackers that can 
sneak out and attack anybody. And if you look across the global you know, statistics on this pandemic, the average age of death in Northern Italy, for example, or Austria or any other, or Iran, any other country that's, you know, highly industrialized and everything else, their average mortality is around 75 years of age. I think Italy was like 80. And so you have very, and yet in the United States, if you watch the news, they're always featuring that one person that was quote unquote perfectly healthy at 35 and then got a hug and died. A, that's impossible. There's no 35-year-old perfectly healthy that can die from a single virus. We can look at HIV. We can look at Ebola. We can look at any of these things. And healthy people survive these things. In fact, they live with these organisms in their bloodstream for decades, oftentimes with absolutely no ramifications. And so what is a virus becomes a very important question for us as a humanity because we're so tempted to slip into this warlike mentality and believe that we are war with this invisible terrorist. And it's the job of this human immune system, which doesn't exist, and we can go into that, but there, there is no such thing as a human immune system. There's no organ in the body that is the immune system. And the last 30 years of the body has shown us, you know, through genomics, something extraordinary. And this is, you know, really paradigm-shifting science here. And I would say there's only a few times in history of the last 2,000 years we've seen this big of a paradigm shift happen in science. The first I, that I could point to would be, you know, 2,100 years ago or something with Pythagoras with the Greeks who finds out that the planet is not flat, the earth is round and a sphere. And that's mind-blowing at the time. And here we are 2,000 years later and we still have a flat earth society and people that haven't grasp the idea that this is a sphere. And so this is where you get these huge paradigm shifting ideas that take a long time to get traction. And you're going to see a lot of dissent against the new paradigm for hundreds of years in that case. Where that paradigm started to really come into normalcy was with Galileo 1600 years later, when the telescope is developing, he looks out in the universe and says, oh my God, literally, oh my God, we're not at the center of the universe we are actually orbiting the sun. And that was like mind blowing for everybody. It challenged science, it challenged religion, it challenged everybody. What, we're not at the center, like how is that possible? We're the only species like us, right? We're the tip of the entire universal development thing. We must be, we're not at the center. In fact, we're like in this weird little suburb of a tiny little galaxy around an average to small size sun in the middle of a billion star galaxy that floats somewhere out in a miserable suburb of a billion other galaxies and we're just insignificant that is still too hard for us to consider and so we continue to find important gravitas in our politicians and in our businesses and everything else and act like we're doing something important oh my gosh like billion dollar company wow that's amazing no, that's not amazing. A billion star galaxy in the middle of a billion. That's amazing. This is slightly interesting at best. So we import this stuff that just is not even really radically important at all, forgetting the magnitude and the grandiosity of the nature that we're within. And so again, we're answering what is a virus. So this is why you guys can only ask one more question after this. The virome is not a living thing. And this is very important. So I've been lecturing on the microbiome for years and I would always throw the viruses in at the end because people won't like to, to know that they're there. And so I, my whole pitch has been for a decade now. The microbiome is friendly. The microbiome is our foundation. We don't need, there's not three good species of bacteria. So your probiotic is, is not correct. Like there's not like all of those bad guys and you have to overwhelm them with the good guys. This is not 
a battlefield. This is not a soccer field. This is literally an ecosystem of millions of species that are trying to be in relationship. And ultimately what we find out from that journey is the human immune system is actually that of diverse relationships in balance. And so there's only global immunity. There's only ecosystem immunity, which means balance or homeostasis. There's no such thing as human immune system. And what's really underscoring that is to start to do genomic assays on organ systems to find out that a healthy liver, a healthy kidney, a healthy bladder, a healthy breast all have microbiome in them actively working to nursemaid those organ systems into health. The way in which bacteria have been communicating to create diversity of life within their species and within the whole biome of the, of the microbes is through horizontal gene transfer. This is where a single organism can bump next to an adjacent one and pass a piece of genetic information directly into their cytoplasm. And they can be, then take that up and make the... We see this happen every day in ICUs. If, if you put somebody on antibiotics, there's going to be one or two of those bacteria that figure out a genetic loophole to the damage from that. And they can pass that horizontally, not through reproduction. They don't have to reproduce to pass on to their babies this resistance. They can instantaneously pass that skill set of genetic you know update horizontally through the the population and suddenly a whole icu is contaminated with all kinds of bacteria that are resistant to the drugs you've been using same thing happens in a farm field seven years into using the roundup antibiotics across your crops suddenly you have all sorts of weeds that are roundup resistant and they're growing you've never had these weeds before and suddenly they're going berserk in your field there's been horizontal gene transfer across the species from the microbes in the soil to the plants to the mitochondria within the you know, protozoa or the, the mitochondria within the earthworm. All of these things are capable of all this horizontal gene transfer. The real breakthrough in diversification of life, however, came not from horizontal gene transfer, but through the development of the virus. The virus is a long distance package of genomic information update. And so now you didn't have to be adjacent to the bacteria that made the breakthrough of the software update that would allow for more resilience and more adaptive capacity. Instead, you could pass this over great distances. These have become so important to the way in which life happens on Earth that we cannot find a genome that's not entirely composed of viruses really in the end. We're slowly decoding the viral genome to understand how the human genome was built. And already, we're only a couple years into this process, and there's quadrillions of, of genes to consider. But in this process, we figured out that each of you are already, we know, at least 50% composed by direct insertion of viruses into your genome to allow you to be human. And to do that, it took, it took millions of years of exposure to quadrillions and quadrillions and quadrillions of viruses to find the ones that you need. So in the transition from single-celled organisms into multicelled organisms then to mammals, we developed a better and better regulatory system as to which viruses we would turn on and replicate to spread throughout our system and to pass on to others, and which viruses we would go ahead and internalize into our genome to store for long-term data. And then a subset of those would even be integrated into our reproductive genome that would pass into a sperm or an ovum to go on to pass on a new gene trait to the humans that we would reproduce with. And so to do this, the virome became very good at targeting its information. And so the main difference, you know, if there's any, between a virus and this horizontal gene transfer phenomenon where you're kind of passing information locally, is that the virus seems to be more specialized in its delivery system on the proteins on its surface to target it. And so this is very much like FedEx picking up a package 
far scans it, knows exactly where that needs to go now, and it will show up halfway around the world on the right stoop. How the hell is that possible? Like, it's so bizarre that we're capable of delivering to that degree. And viruses are 10 times better. They're very specific. Not only does it know which cell it's going to show up on, it would be able to deliver itself into the exact drawer in your house that you wanted that thing to belong. Okay. It's so specific. Mm. It knows exactly which receptor on which type of cell it's going to touch. And it's carrying information in to tell the cell what type of genomic information it has. So the cell knows whether or not it needs that and wants to reproduce that or not. So when we start to back up and ask, what is the virus? In the end, the virus is a non-living organism. We need to be clear about that. And so it's, it's not part of the microbiome. It's not something that needs to be killed because it actually doesn't live. Instead, it's a, a targeted transfer system for genetics globally. And so when we say there's a viral pandemic, that is redundant. Life is a pandemic. That's how this earth began, is we had a pandemic of life occur here. And it was out of control beautiful. And it was out of control complex in its development because of its variety. And the human is a very pathetic snapshot of that beautiful pandemic of life that's occurred here. And to give you a sense of that, a, a flea has 30,000 genes a human has 20,000 genes. A fruit fly has 13,000 genes. So you sit somewhere between a fruit fly and a flea in complexity. And Kate's looking at her husband being like, I told you, I told you, I knew it. Not terribly complicated. And so, you know, somewhere between a flea and that fruit fly, you wake up every morning and think you are important. And you think that you have all of this responsibility, you have all of this, you know, to-do list, and you're taking care of the kids around you, and you're doing this or that. In reality, the only thing we're really called to do as a human species, if you look at our neurologic structure and everything else, is to observe. We are here to be witness to the beauty. We are programmed for being witness. We are not programmed well to make anything. The microbiome makes stuff. There's 125 trillion genes in the fungal kingdom. There's 20,000 in ours. 125 trillion genes in the fungal kingdom. They're making stuff we're here to be witness to it. And so when you start to really ask, what is the virome? It is the language of life. It is the pandemic of life on earth. And if we see ourselves as opposed to that, then we have opposed ourselves to life and we will ultimately perish for that opposition. Mm. That's so relaxing to think. (laughs) (laughs) And our purpose is to observe, like I just, my body feels so relaxed. Thank you for that. That's amazing. Okay. So then. Do we talk about the difference between disease? No. Yeah. So is a virus, in fact, a, a disease? disease? Is COVID a disease? Yeah. What's great question. On? So this is where, if I answer this fully, this probably gets taken down or something. So. Well, no, it's just, a, it's a podcast, so yeah. it won't <laughs> have at it. Yeah, I don't, don't think say whatever you don't, want. Don't put this clip on your Instagram feed. We won't. No, we won't. The video, so, we don't even share the video. We don't so. do anything with the video. It's just so we okay. can see each other. That's right. So this is the good stuff, people. Here's the good stuff. It's coming. <laughs> All right. So are people passing away right now at a high rate on the planet is one part of the narrative that's important because I'm losing you know, patients all the time to all kinds of different diseases, as, as has been said there. And so I fill out death certificates that uh, say cancer or heart attack or pneumonia or whatever it is. I fill out these death certificates. And so 
when a patient dies, we have a responsibility to kind of put a name on it, to categorize it, whatever it is. But when we start to look over here at a virus and ask, can you ever put virus as a cause of death? The scientific answer is absolutely not. That is scientifically impossible that somebody dies of a virus because the virus itself is a small genetic piece of information that's transferring information on how to make proteins. That's it. Where we run into this confusion or how this confusion or narrative gets to throw itself you know, off the cliff of, of reality here is through a set of circumstances that are near each other in time and seem to have a, a linear causation or, or consequence. And so when we see somebody who is dying from, and the doctor's about to put COVID-19 on the death certificate, that virus has been gone on average for three weeks to as much as three months earlier. The virus isn't even detectable anymore. The virus, when you get an acute viral infection with something like a coronavirus, is only in your bloodstream detectably for three to five days. And it's only really you know, peaking high enough to cause a downstream passage of information to other cells, whether it be within your body, you know, giving the genetic update to other organ systems or, you know, enough so that you're producing enough so that it's going out into your breath and, and other respiratory and secretions and everything else so that you can give the genetic update to other people in the environment so that you're not selfishly holding what's been important update for you that you've decided to make. You want to pass that on. That part lasts only for probably 24 to 48 hours. And so you have this small spike where, you know, detectable for five days in kind of an infectious, you know, capacity, if you want to call it infection, but it's, it's a communication state of the virus is there only for that short 48 hours of time. And the peak of that tends to be right around the very first moment that you start to have symptoms. And so the very first time that you get the common cold and the first time you start to feel like, oh man, I'm a little congested and maybe a little headache right now, that's probably where your peak is. And within a couple hours, your viromic load is already you know, diminishing or your viral load. So the viral load is diminishing and, and by the next day you wake up and you don't feel better, you feel worse. Now you're like super congested, starting to get sinus pressure. Virus is now you know, diminished, no, no longer part of it. Two days later, you're starting to get secondary sinusitis, bacterial thing. You haven't been doing good sleep hygiene. You don't have good nasal microbiome. So you're starting to develop a really unbalanced system that's starting to have to go through massive correction through inflammatory processes, kill tons of cells that are in the wrong place or inflamed or whatever it is. And so now you have fever a couple of days later because now you have a secondary sinusitis or you have a secondary pneumonia a week later and you have to deal with that and the body has to kill those bacteria and go through that whole process. If you've gotten COVID-19 antibody testing, you know that they tell you your antibodies aren't going to show up for at least two to three weeks after you've been sick. Sometimes they'll say you have to wait five weeks to go get your antibody testing because the antibodies aren't going to be detectable. Wait a second. I thought the immune system for viruses was antibodies. And yet the virus was only there for two days and gone before I even, you know, started to even really get sick and long before I ever had an antibody to that thing. So why did the virus go away? How did that happen? And this is, you know, I can't believe this hasn't become a, you know, an alternative narrative out there, which is the reality is that viruses do not respond to antibodies. Antibodies are not the way in which you stay in relationship to a virus. If that was true, none of us would make it to seven days of age because a baby at day seven of life has 10 to the eighth viruses per gram of stool. 10 to the eighth, that's, you know, you're looking at, you know, 100 million viruses per gram of stool 
present in a seven-day-old. Why that's important in this discussion is that a child can't make any antibodies until they're three to six months of age. And so if we had a com if our common narrative which is the the immune system is at war against viruses and it uses antibodies to kill viruses and protect you from them and therefore you need a vaccine to protect you so that you can have antibodies to this virus none of it measures up at all to any of the science that we've known for 60 80 years but it certainly doesn't fit into the more recent stuff showing us just how much virus is in the bloodstream of a human any given moment Right now, both of you sitting there, you look pretty healthy. None of you look acutely under distress. And yet both of you have 10 to the 15 viruses in your bloodstream right this minute. And so you start to do that level of genomic complexity and realize, wait, the viruses aren't making anybody diseased. Viruses aren't causing any detectable illness in the vast majority. And of course, that's what's happening with this pandemic is at least 50% of people, and you read Lancet, you read anybody, in the, and all the journals will tell you 50% or more are asymptomatic. Then another 40% of the remaining 50% are mildly symptomatic. And then there's a small percentage that are severely symptomatic and a small percentage of those that will get hospitalized. And then you're down to 0 0.0003 that will actually, you know, have a, a mortal event. But that mortal event happens three weeks to three months after the initial exposure and disappearance of that virus. And so to say that anybody's ever died of coronavirus is actually technically completely wrong. The coronavirus was an event that happened way upstream. The dis-ease that happened subsequently was an imbalanced state of your, your organ system and your response system due to a depletion of response elements. This is very much like, let's go with maybe a windshield. And so, you know, you jump in your car and I, I just got back to, to my location here and I hadn't driven my car in weeks. And it's like, you know, this, this film all over everything, you know, seawater and, you know, salt water in the air and dust. And there's a film I can't see well. And, and so there's a temptation for me to say, well, that dust is terrible. That dust is totally broken. And, you know, it, that windshield needs to be replaced. It's clearly dysfunctional. There's a disease with my visibility through my windshield. So I... I, I've created this whole story about the fact that an ecosystem has been created, a, a, a terrain shift has happened on my windshield, and now I'm blaming the terrain rather than all the behaviors that led to it. And then I go to hit the windshield washer fluid, and it doesn't spray anything because I haven't been filling up the reservoir on the windshield wiper fluid, and so nothing there. And so now the damn car doesn't work and that, that thing there. And now I'm driving, I'm pissed off. And so I don't notice the light because I'm pissed at my stupid windshield and there's no windshield wiper. And I hit a car in front of me and have a concussion and end up in the hospital and everything else. And in the end, it was some film on my windshield and I go and put on a death certificate, dirty windshield. That's basically the same kind of phenomenon we're doing with coronaviruses. You've got all of this dysfunction. You forgot to fill up the reservoirs. You didn't wash the windshield. You haven't taken care of the damn car in months. And then you get in it and you're in a pissed off emotional state and you're totally distracted neurologically and you're not paying attention to keeping the line, you know, life in the, in the lines and, and you kill yourself. That's essentially what we can now show through all the public health statistics is the dis-ease that is causing death from this current pandemic situation is chronic disease. And so... One of these chronic diseases is the current aging process. And I have you know, a lot of relatives that have lived over 100 years. I've got great grandparents on both sides that have gone over 100. And I can tell you that age is not historically a disease. It is today. Every year that goes by, the speed at which we lose mitochondria within our cells and therefore have biologic aging is accelerating. 
And so just the presence on a toxic planet from one year to the next has become its own form of a disease. We have created such a toxic environment that we cannot tolerate life on Earth. And I love thinking about for a moment those old Star Trek episodes where, you know, Scotty and, you know, beams, you know, Spock down to the surface of the planet and he talks back up to Scotty. He's like, good news, this planet supports life. If he were to beam down here today, I wonder if Spock would recognize that this planet supports life because one in three children, you know, has some sort of spectrum disorder or other chronic disorder by the time they're uh, seven years old. By the time they're 16, we've got 52 to 54% of kids with a chronic disorder or disease. And the diseases, the disease that they're, they're manifesting is intolerance to their planet. They're allergic to the air they breathe. They're allergic to the pollen from the flowers that are around them. They're allergic to food that they would put in their mouths. They can't tolerate a normal hydration protocol. They've got chronic diarrhea or whatnot. Our planet is becoming intolerable to life. And that is a big warning for us as we start to think about, as we start to blame some tiny little genetic code of a virus for the disease that we're seeing, we have to come to terms with the fact that we haven't been taking care of the car. We have not filled up any reservoir. We're sleep deprived. We're dehydrated. We're vitamin D deficient. We are you know, vitamin C deficient. We are nutrient deficient. Our soils are deficient. You know, we are literally running life down to an empty tank. And then we blame the cancer, which is just a symptom of an empty tank. Cancer has never jumped out and killed a healthy person, ever. In my clinic, we measure phase angle, which is a, a really cool measure of how much electrical charge can a single cell hold. And that correlates really well with your intracellular hydration. Cancer shows up around a level of four, and the, and the range is typically around 10 to 13 is your ideal health. Death happens at 3.5. Cancer happens at about 4.5. So you need to be nearly dead before cancer really appears in a life-threatening fashion. And when we do our chemotherapy trials in medicine, we will very commonly report a one-year or three-year or five-year benefit to a chemotherapy. And we say, we decrease breast cancer death, breast cancer mortality by 15%. By the way, any placebo with any trial ever done in history is 30% efficacy. But we can get an FDA approval for a drug that's 10 to 15%. You know, as long as we're almost half as good as a placebo, we can get a drug approved. So we show that 10 to 15% efficacy, and then we put that drug into play. And in the end, the reason why we always have to be so careful about the way we use this language around disease and mortality, because we have never changed all-cause mortality. People die no matter what we do. Uh, you can give them surgery, radiation, and people, the all-cause mortality really doesn't budge. It's usually you know, one and a half to three years out from an initiation of a trial, you see everybody start to die. And so that's because, again, the phase angle has gone from 10 to 4.5 and it's cruising towards 3.5. Before they ever join the trial, they're on that trajectory. And nothing we do in medicine takes somebody and moves them back up that phase angle. Nobody steps in to show you how to hydrate. Nobody shows you how to get an electrical charge from mitochondria. Nobody shows you what real nutrition at a microbiome level looks. And so nothing we do changes that line. And so they all have to die at the same point. Now, what gets filled out on that? death certificate in a clinical trial is how we claim success. If they die from a heart attack and they didn't die from breast cancer, then we say the chemotherapy worked, literally. If they died from a stroke, the chemotherapy worked because they didn't die from breast cancer. And so this is the extraordinary phenomenon that we've created the appearance of pharmaceutical efficacy when in fact we're just 
being observers to the march towards death. So everything we've ever called a disease is a symptom. No more obvious than that is any syndrome that would come after viral exposure. For you to get sick after a virus or within the context of a viral exposure means that you were so out of whack with your you know, inflammatory cascade, with your capacity for regeneration with stem cells, with the macrophage sweep up T cell system, all of these things were so depleted, so overtaxed, so overwhelmed by your day-to-day toxicity that you couldn't respond. You couldn't get there. And right now, now the only thing we can be really certain about about the pandemic right now is none of the numbers are accurate. Are they too high, too low? I have no idea. All I know is none of them are real. And so I'm always astonished to go to Johns Hopkins website and they say there's been 1,313,000 deaths. It was like, that's a very specific number. You have no idea how many deaths are being attributed to this. Our record keeping system and our method for logging these deaths is horrifically inaccurate. And you see here all the time now, well, you know, if we suspected, even if they text negative, we expected they were probably had COVID, we go ahead and put COVID. And so, you know, but nonetheless, we seem very certain about these numbers. So let's say that these numbers are certain. You know, around the world, we've seen around a million deaths. And amazingly, 25% of those deaths have happened in the United States, which is extraordinary because we only have 4% of the world's population. And we thought we were like the cutting edge global technology for medicine. So we got the most expensive by 7x at least to the next, you know, most expensive one being Japan. We're seven times more expensive per capita, man, woman, and child than any other place in the world. And yet we had you know, at least 8x the kind of mortality that we saw anywhere else because we had 25% of the global, you know, death in the context of 4% of the population. And we saw younger death here than we did anywhere else. And I think those stories have been overemphasized. I think the numbers are ridiculously low still. Your risk of dying under age of 70 is low. Under 50 gets ridiculously death under age of 30 is almost non-existent. And so in the end, it's very safe to be young and in this pandemic right now. What we should have obviously done is if we had really any concerns, as soon as we saw Italy go down and Iran and some of those early countries, we should have immediately said, all right, if you're over 60, early retirement for the next three months, you guys hang out, we're sending out the youth. All the kids are gonna work everywhere. They're gonna run the restaurants. If you're over 60, congratulations, you know, promote that middle manager at 30 years old because they're gonna work the restaurant, no problem, nobody's gonna die. We could have done that, but we didn't. We wanted this to be a really extensive you know, narrative around our import of increasing our pharmaceutical dependence and, and, and rolling this thing out. So in the end, in a very long-winded fashion, classic Zach Bush, disease is a symptomatology, and we've created a bunch of words around that to make it sound scary and make it sound like this stuff leaps out at us. But certainly there is no such thing as a corona disease. There are symptoms of downstream empty tank when you weren't taking care of the system and, and your effort to update the software with this virus depleted you and you tipped into some sort of downstream cascade, just like if you get the common cold, which is completely benign, but then three weeks later, you end up with an entrenched sinusitis. That's not because of the, the cold virus. And everybody seems to understand that. They're like, oh yeah, well, that's secondary bacterial everything else. Why did we forget that? Like, why are we blaming all this death three weeks later? on coronavirus when it's the common cold. Coronavirus is the common cold. And so we have the common cold that's got a little bit more complex protein structure in this coronavirus than other coronaviruses, which suggests that it interacts with our system a little differently. So it's gonna tax different systems. And the one that's specifically taxed is our, our cascade of clotting mechanisms at the small blood vessel in the way in which we deal with hypoxia or lack of oxygen. And so it's different than the common coronavirus by a little bit, 
But in the end, it's really the same phenomenon where you have a slight challenge to the system. And for most people, that's absolutely no problem. If you are in such a state of disarray, imbalance, you get that slight challenge. It may tip you off you know, into your own inflammatory cascade, but you're going to die of your, the consequences of your own physiology, not of the physiology of a virus. Got it. Hmm. So one thing I have not heard you talk about is why within that context so disproportionately has COVID affected people of color, black people and people of color? Such an important question. So if we look at the population statistics around the world, not just with this COVID, but any respiratory season, the respiratory seasons are so fascinating. They, they are predicted down to the day. Every year in the Northern Hemisphere, in the Northern part of the United States, you know, above basically the 40th parallel, Maybe you could go down as low as like the 35th parallel, but somewhere between 35th and 40th parallel, you're going to end up with... Where's the 35th, 40th? So 35th is down around like, you know, that must be around Southern Tennessee, something like that, you know, across there. Boulder, Colorado is is at the 40th parallel. If you think of Colorado, like in the center of the country and in the center of that state is Boulder. So roughly there, halfway across Colorado is your 40th parallel. So anywhere north of there you're going to see in the third week of November, flu season starts, which is truly amazing if we keep the story that viruses are pandemic and they start over in Asia and they have to move over here every year. That's how it happens. That's how we create the the influenza vaccine, which you have to put in quotes because it's never prevented influenza in its history. We're coming back to that for yeah. sure. And so it's it's a vaccine, meaning it's going to induce an antibody that has nothing to do with neutralizing, you know, back antibody or viral propensity. And then, but to get that, we have to go find, figure out which strains of influenza are coming at us this year. So we rush over to South Asia every kind of March, April, which is their winter time in South Asia. And we'll figure out which strains of influenza look to be happening this year. So then we'll inject those into rabbits, make the rabbits make antibodies to those. And then we extract those proteins and we come up with this weird extraction process and then say, okay, now we have an antigen that is these three strains of influenza and we're going to inject those into humans with the expectation that that antigen is going to trigger that same antibody response in the human and therefore somehow protect you. Every couple of years, you hear the announcement at the end of flu season, whoops, sorry, we totally screwed that up. Those are the wrong three strains. And so we saw a pretty high mortality rate this year. Turns out that the mortality rate has absolutely nothing to do whether we hit the strain or not in that vaccine. And so it's fascinating how ineffective that vaccination program is. And yet the, the perception is we need to protect ourselves from Asia. And yet it doesn't make any sense at all that there's suddenly every third week of November in the above the 40th parallel, we suddenly get hit with a virus from Asia. How is that possible that the virus knows how to time that so damn perfectly every year? And, and it's like, you know, they like catch the same United flight every year with patient number one that comes over. And then the CDC tracks that patient number one is like, oh, here comes influenza from Bob from New Hampshire. And here it goes. It's like, there's no way that this is biologically possible. And yet we're willing to listen to this narrative as scientists and physicians for decades that there's a flu season. We somehow accept this. We somehow accept that this is possible. What's really happening in the third week of November is a complete transformation of our atmosphere. We go into a massive carbon dump into the atmosphere in the third week of November as we go into fall. And so when we we start to shift into solar winter and the microbes in the soil go quiet and you lose or you gain that dormancy of the plant life, we stop sucking all the CO2 and methane and other small carbon particulate into the, into the soils and we put it all in, into the air. 
and all that plant life of, of the northern hemisphere has to start to decompose. And so all those leaves sitting in New Hampshire or anywhere else are decomposing and it's methane that's off-gassing. So you get this CO2, methane, and small particulate matter into the air. And your question was, how come African-Americans and other minorities are suffering so much? If you look at where we have the highest concentrations of air pollution, it's going to be in the most industrial sectors of any city. And it turns out those are typically the lowest socioeconomic pockets. And so it has, you know, first of all, nothing to do with skin color. It has everything to do with where do you live compared to the production of the small carbon content that's going to be complicated by this seasonal shift. So seasonal shift, carbon goes up everywhere. But if you're in an environment that also has ExxonMobil next door and has is, is got a bunch of you know, fuel distillation going on next door and you're in a part of town where none of the cars have catalytic converters that work and you've got a high exhaust uh, kind of uh, transportation type uh, output and all of this and you happen to be adjacent to New Jersey or something that's you know, dumping herbicides and pesticides into the farming industry nearby and it seems to be this collision between agriculture and industrial you know, uh, energy and, and transportation that creates this perfect storm in the air. And so first of all, I think the risk is age, over 70. Second, regional, where are the carbon contents the highest? And the reason why this then influences viruses is because viruses bind to, to small carbon particulate. And when you get carbon binding viruses, you can suddenly get thousands, if not millions of viruses binding to a single tiny particle of carbon that's now delivering way more virus than that human should have ever seen. And so it unbalances our genomic relationship to that virus because of this high ability. So now you're taxing the system to come into balance through an extra, extra difficulty or challenge there. The next highest thing, and that paper came out in China first showing that the level of PM2.5 was one of the best predictors of mortality from this current pandemic. They could also said influenza because that's also been proven. But any, any respiratory virus that can bind PM2.5 to the highest mortality in areas of high air pollution. One of the reasons for that is when you have you higher ex- air Can you explain what PM2.5 means? Like when you say that. Yeah, PM 2.5 is particulate matter is, is the PM there. So particulate matter 2.5. So it's a carbon particle smaller than 2.5 microns. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little uh, carbon molecule that's able to bind viruses. And those carbon particulate are able to go into your tiniest airways. And so you get really dense delivery of what should have been a respiratory, kind of upper respiratory experience for that virus is now being delivered deep into your lungs. And so the higher your, your PM 2.5, the more deep the delivery is. Also attached to that virus the, or into that PM 2.5 carbon particulate is things like cyanide. And cyanide has lots of mechanisms for not being able to get into the body. So PM 2.5 shouldn't be able to get into the body. We have all kinds of mechanisms with mucosal layer of the lung and you know, uh, barrier systems of tight junctions and all this. So neither the PM 2.5 or the cyanide is causing problems unless it binds to a virus. And the virus is a delivery system. So the virus knows how to bind to the surface of the lung and get absorbed into the lung very rapidly. So now you've got a Trojan horse on the back of that virus, which is cyanide. And when cyanide goes into the bloodstream, it turns out that the very first thing that happens is hypoxia, loss of oxygen carrying capacity. And if you read any of the accounts from New York or Northern Italy or Iran or Germany or, you know, Hubei province, you're going to find out that the patients that end up dying were the ones that showed up blue. 
and they showed up blue almost instantly. They didn't have fever, which is very interesting. 5,700 patients admitted to New York hospitals were, were published in, in uh, the, a JAMA, I think was the, the publication. And so there's American Medical Association publication. So JAMA, 5,700 patients, and they listed all of their vital signs and all of their admitting laboratories. Their average temperature was stone cold normal, no fevers. Their average white blood cell was stone cold normal, no signs of infection, no signs of left shift, which would suggest the presence of a virus. So the people that we said died of coronavirus showed up with hypoxia, which the virus can't cause. There's nothing in the virus that can cause hypoxia, except that the virus can bind PM 2.5, which binds cyanide, which causes histotoxic hypoxia. It's the most common cause of this condition. When you get that condition, you can't carry oxygen, no matter how much oxygen you, you give the system. And so in New York hospitals, when we're slamming everybody who even shows up any suspicion of this thing, and we're throwing them on a respirator, we're putting them on 40% you know, levels of oxygen, which is horribly toxic to the lung. Oxygen is very injurious to lung tissue. And so you go anything over the like, you know, 17, 20% typical of air, you're going to start to get oxidative injury to the lung. So they're already going through some sort of hypoxic injury due to cyanide poisoning, and then you give them a huge lung injury. What's going to happen over the next couple of days is they're going to fill those lungs with fluid. And if you go back to SARS in 2002, I found some accounts when I was doing research early in COVID that described the presentation of those that died from SARS. And so here, 18 years ago, they show up blue, and then everybody has to wait. No matter what they do, the patient remains hypoxic. And then within two days, their lungs fluid fill with fluid. And then over the next seven days, they'll they get secondary pneumonias. And over the next two weeks, they'll die. That description is exactly what happened here 18 years later, because we didn't learn the first time because we kept blaming a virus when in fact they were getting the exact same phenomenon in 2002 and then 2012 with MERS. And now again, 2018, 19, we start to see the rev up. Right before this pandemic, Earth Justice sued the US government for the amount of cyanide that was in our industrial cities specific to our regions of poor people. So that our communities that were most socioeconomically compromised had the highest levels of cyanide anywhere. So we had a setup. And then the Australian fires happened. And the Australian fires put more PM 2.5 than we have seen in decades into the air. And so we suddenly have a perfect delivery system. And it turns out in 2017-18, in 2018 to 19, the flu season, right before we see this pandemic, we had the lowest respiratory mortality in a 17-year pattern. So we happened to get lucky one year, which meant that the population that would have died from a respiratory condition last year didn't and aged. So now we have an extra aged population that's set up for a respiratory disease. Then we get the worst fires in history, blankets the world in PM 2.5, November, December hits in, we have an abnormal season this year. You know, like usually we see that peak mortality to happen in February, March. Instead, we saw it about eight weeks later than that. And again, if you track the amount of PM 2.5 that could have carried that further or into different trajectories, it kind of fits as well. So a lot of interesting factors that set us up for the fact that you know, some people are saying that this thing was planned, that people knew before this thing happened that this was going to happen. And I would say, that was absolutely true because we knew at the CDC that we had a low mortality year last year. So we could have easily come along and said, oh my gosh, there's a pandemic of fat cat Buddha disease. You know, make up something random and say, this is going to kill the world this year. And we're going to have a really huge spike in mortality and only show them the statistics compared to last year. And it's going to look like we had this massive amount of respiratory death compared to last year. 
But if you look at the seven-year trend of mortality, we're now spot on. We've now caught up to the mortality we should have had last year. We've caught up this year, and we're right on mark for the age-adjusted and population-adjusted statistics for how much normal mortality should we see from a respiratory cause this year. We're spot on. And so did we have a pandemic? Yes. If you want to say the word pan, meaning global, endemic, meaning a trackable condition, we had a pandemic. Was it due to a virus? There are 10 to the 31 viruses present in the air at any given time. 10 to the 31 is larger than any number you've ever imagined. It's a one with 31 zeros after. It's 10 million times more than our stars in the entire universe, not your galaxy, not your neighborhood out there. It's the entire universe. 10 million times more than all those stars are the number of viruses in the air right now. There's another 10 to the 31 viruses in the soil beneath your feet. And there's another 10 to the 30 viruses in the ocean water. And so there is 10 million times 10 million times 10 million times 10 million times more than our stars in the entire universe of viruses that we live in and amongst and breathe and eat and drink and exposed to. I have 10 to 15 in my bloodstream right now. Is there a pandemic? Is there a global phenomenon of death? Yes. And it turns out that humans have been dying at 100% rates since our origin. We all kick the bucket all the time. And we die in a very predictable fashion. And we know that respiratory death is going to be a predictable as cardiovascular, as cancer. And we can look at seven-year trends and tell you how many are going to die over the next few years. Not necessarily next month, but we can tell you on average where that's going to average out because of these long-term public health statistics. And not once have I seen a single media channel carry anything on the seven-year trends. And they never age-adjust it, and they never population-adjust it. The population is growing. Notice that the population is growing. By the way, type in global population count, you know, counter and watch the website that's counting the global population right now and tell me which direction it's going. In the midst of this global pandemic, that's apparently the scariest thing that humankind watched our population grow. It's like a spinning wheel of up. This is not going to challenge human life on Earth. This is not going to cause any you know, threat of extinction. The extinction we're headed for is the failure to reproduce. And over the last 40, 50 years, we've seen one in three males now develop infertility from a lack of sperm count as we've gone from a sperm count of 100 million per milliliter down to 48. And so we've had 52 to 57% decrease in sperm counts over the last 30 to 40 years in every Western country in the, in the world. And so we are on the precipice of extinction and it has nothing to do with a virus. Good news is the viruses will outlast us and they will carry a message of hope and you know, prosperity to the, the future species that will spring out of this earth. Wow, okay. So for what you just said right now, the reduction in sperm count, let's just take males for this instant. Is that, I'm just gonna explain this back to you so to make sure I understand in Mike's language, from Zach's brain uh, <laughs> is basically because of the way we've treated our land soil or our land, air and water, whether that is like our food that we're consuming, the toxins that we're putting on all of our, you know, our agriculture, and then you affect the water, what we've done into there, into the land, all three land, air and sea basically is leading how we're living our life in a toxic environment, our male body is not able to function optimally because it's constantly fighting toxins away and it's allowing like, it's decreasing sperm count in men. Is that, I mean, 
Is that right? Like in that, just that's a super basic example, but. Yeah, no, I, I think somebody could t- take that, that basic information and, and take that home and put that in the bank. I think, yes, definitely the toxicity of our planet is causing, you know, this extinction level dysfunction within our reproduction or within chronic disease epidemics, you know, whatever you have, you know, we've built whole cities down in Houston that we call Texas Children's Hospital to house children with cancer. This has only been 10 years in the making. Like, you know, it's not like this has always been like this. Like, and yet this isn't headline news. And, and we're not stopping global economies because our children are having an epidemic of cancer. And so this doesn't stop anything. We spray more glyphosate and more toxin in the environment every year. We continue to sell Teflon pans where, you know, we continue to poison our children and it doesn't stop us. And so there's something that's not scary about the word of poisoning. For some reason, it's not scary to anybody that we're poisoning ourselves with all, all of our convenience. I don't know why that is. I, I'm not sure. I think it must be you know, a little bit of a defense mechanism at the human brain level that says, you know, well, it sounds like it's my fault, so I'm going to put that into some sort of category of denial you know, or something like that. I, I don't know. I honestly have no idea how that works neurologically. But in the end, it's, it's actually a little bit more insidious than, than even just toxicity in that in 1976, we added the chemical Roundup you know, which is a family of chemicals. Glyphosate is the active ingredient that they list, but there's at least 16 very toxic things that they put into to Roundup so that it delivers at a, a very rapid fashion at very low concentrations. We just actually got back just this last 10 days in our laboratory. We just did an extraordinary study looking at kidney tubules and gut cells and vascular system and its response to glyphosate as a single agent versus the finished product of Roundup. And we knew Roundup was causing problems. For years, we couldn't do any Roundup experiments because they would kill all of our cells so fast and we, we couldn't really do it really well. Xian, our MD-PhD from China, that's uh, just a brilliant human being and a phenomenal scientist has really mastered this technique in our laboratories over the last year. And he's now doing extraordinary dose uh, response curves with glyphosate versus Roundup. What we're seeing is somewhere around 100,000 to a million times more toxicity out of the Roundup formula than we see with glyphosate. And the reason why that's pertinent to this is because the levels of toxicity that we see for kidney tubules, for example, is at two parts per billion, which is exactly where we start to see you know, normal levels in, in our entire water system. And there are certainly areas of you know, high agricultural environments where you're going to get way higher than that. But in your typical urban San Francisco or you know type environment, you're going to find two to five parts per billion, pretty typical. And you're going to find that in all of your food is going to be in somewhere between two parts per billion to two parts per million. So yeah, a big thousand fold you know, change in, in concentrations in your food. But so in a very biologic levels, meaning daily exposure levels, we're seeing kidney death happen, kidney cell toxicity with this level of Roundup exposure. The reason why, you know, there's, there's direct toxicity that's, that shows up. The reason why it's scary is because way before you get direct toxicity at these two parts per billion or whatever, you start to block the normal physiologic pattern and the capacity of bacteria and plants to make amino acids. Amino acids, as you may recall, are the building blocks for every protein. So you asked about sperm specifically, and sperm are very complex structures. Uh, they look a lot like bacteria. They behave a lot like bacteria. They, the only humanoid type thing is the tail of it. The head of it looks a lot like a bacteria and functions very similar. There's no mitochondria in the head of a sperm, and so it can't produce its own energy there. And so the, the, the mitochondria are relegated to the second device, which is the tail of the sperm that helps propel it forward. But it's really a delivery system for a package of genetic information, which sounds a hell of a lot like a virus to me. 
And so in the end, if you really want to go with the fact that viruses are infectious, then pregnancy is a really fantastic example of, of a daily infection that happens all over the world. <laughs> and it so, feels like it sometimes. <laughs> I have no doubt that that's true. You know, you're going to get all of the weird symptoms that you would expect. You get the weird flushing and the, the feverish and nausea and change in bowel habits, all kinds of things happening as that, that male infection happens. And so, you know... <laughs> this bizarre situation of protein dependence of all these structures. And so proteins, there's over 280,000 different proteins that make up a typical human body. And that's probably a woman, a male, maybe less than that, but you got 280,000 proteins and they're made of just 22 amino acids. And so in some ways, this is a lot like what you would expect, for example, with uh, the, the English alphabet. And so you got like, 26 letters or something and you got five vowels. Of the 22 letters of the amino acid alphabet that's going to go make these 280,000 different proteins, just like the 26 letters have no problem spelling quarter million words, no problem, you just change their order and, and their meaning shifts with them and all that. Same thing happens in the protein world. So you change the spelling, you, you rearrange the amino acids, you get all this incredible biodiversity of proteins in there. They have totally different functions. Some of them are structural, like scaffolding. Some of them are really workhorse machines that are there to clean up toxins or to change the way in which metabolism happens. They are always moving electrons everywhere. They work function as digestive enzymes, whatever it is. All those proteins are made of 22 amino acids, and of those 22 amino acids, there's nine that are called the essential amino acids. These are the vowels within the English language. And so if you eliminate Z from the English language, you'll screw up my name and maybe a zucchini, but not much else harmed in, in the effort. But you take an A out, you're going to misspell a huge number of proteins. And so when you take an essential amino acid out, you are going to misspell practically every protein out there because the essential amino acids can't be made by the human system. We call them essential because they have to come from either a plant or a microbe in our gut or in the soil system. And so those essential amino acids are the ones that got stolen away by glyphosate and Roundup when they moved into our crop system and water systems in 1976, really got out of control in 1992 when we started using it as a desiccant to our crops and we started spraying wheat, which of course donned the gluten sensitivity area in 1992 and 93 when we started spraying Roundup on our wheat and suddenly we're all you know, allergic to or, in, or sensitive to this gluten stuff. It's because we're, we have a toxin now delivered at high concentrations in this food. And that toxin blocks the shikimate pathway, which is an, an enzyme pathway that makes the essential amino acids. And in fact, this is how Monsanto got away with getting this thing approved the first time, as they said, it can't hurt humans because it only poisons the shikimate pathway and humans don't have the shikimate pathway. So it must be totally benign. And so they put it on the market saying it's safer than water. Literally, that was their tagline. Roundup, safer than water because we don't have the enzyme targets. Nobody at the EPA apparently dug much deeper to find out what the shikimate pathway was doing to find out they just deleted three to four of the essential amino acids out of the, the alphabet. And so now imagine 1996 hits and suddenly corn, soybean, sugar beets, and 30 other crops over the next 10 years would be genetically modified to be sprayed directly with a chemical that's now poisoning the soils and the plants so they can't make the essential amino acids. That's when the sperm count started to really plummet, was late 80s, early 90s, when we started to get enough into the water and food system that we couldn't make the essential amino acids that are critical to this problem. And is that specific to Roundup? It turns out that the chemical that Bayer makes, that is the reason they, they bought Monsanto, they got EPA and USDA and European Union approval for a new chemical that they genetically modified with a new GMO crop called Liberty Link. 
And so Liberty Link is now growing throughout the Midwest of the United States as a new crop that can be sprayed with a new chemical that blocks a new enzyme pathway that you can no longer make an essential, another essential amino acid. And so we have now got multiple pathways in the same water system of the Mississippi, for example, that's collecting multiple toxins that are blocking now four or five of the essential amino acids, and you can't make a healthy human being anymore in the womb. That's the terrifying effect of the EPA, or the data that we just shared with the EPA. We showed them three different studies that demonstrate the generational toxicity of this compound. With the first generation that you spray, they already have a formed body. They have all their essential amino acids. They've got a good reservoir of proteins. They're there. And so you, you expose the first mouse to an injection of glyphosate or Roundup, and they live out a pretty normal life. Normal pups, no real harm, no metabolic. Generation number two, you don't expose them, and you just take the, the consequences of that generation that was born to a parent that had the essential amino acids deleted, and that generation has obesity, autoimmune dysfunction, and all this. Third generation, cancer, birth defects, stillbirths, all that. So there's a, a generational effect as you delete the essential amino acids for us to build healthy human bodies. And so then you add to that the complexity of reproduction itself, and you're seeing a process of a drop of energy and a drop in metabolic capacity with the mitochondria poisoned at the same rate that you're getting misspelling of proteins and you get dysfunction across the system. And so the same you know, 52 to 54% drop in sperm counts, we could say to any complex organ within the human body, we're literally poisoning the human system and it's gonna show up most obviously in reproduction and chronic disease and death. But on, on the bookends of birth and death, everything else has lost that same reservoir of potential for life. And so we, we're looking at this extraordinary moment where we haven't actually seen the third generation of Roundup kids yet. And that gets me a little frightened for what we're going to see over the next 20 years. And so when we go into the third generation or fourth generation, what that's going to look like. And honestly, we just have no idea. We've never been able to take that study out to four generations in the mice yet. And so we don't know how bad this gets. But what we do know is that humans are beautiful. And the humans that I get to be around on my hospice service are really among the most beautiful. And so the children that are showing right now, the children that are showing up right now, are souls that want this journey, souls that want to be here at the tipping point of human history to say, I'm willing to walk that walk. I'll step into a body that suddenly at 18 months of age is going to have a massive neurologic injury shortly after a vaccine where I develop high fever and I suddenly lose all verbal capacity and I can no longer look my mother in the face and I'm going to scream uncontrollably for four hours a day and hit my head against the wall until I have a callus the size of a baseball on my forehead. And that's the journey I want right now. A soul is willing to walk that journey so that it can be part of a shift and transformation of consciousness within the, uh, this species, within this planet, perhaps. And I am humbled by that. I'm overwhelmed by that. I'm, I feel so inadequate on some level when I'm faced with those journeys in clinic and I see children willing to walk that journey. And I look at myself, I'm like, how can you ever feel sorry for yourself or anything for two seconds because you picked such a wimpy journey? You go around and everybody's like, oh, you're so clever because you run your mouth like diarrhea and blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, it's like, doesn't make any sense why anybody wants me on their podcast. They never get to ask a question. But the, the reality, <laughs> these children are here on purpose and they love us. And, and they, these kids in my clinic just blow my mind. You know, being hugged by an autistic child is, that's a blessed thing. That is a blessed thing. These are 
literal angels walking among us who wanted to take this journey with us and show us something. And what they wanted to show us is that beauty is all around us. You need no voice to be witness to and to express beauty. You can be a nonverbal autistic child and show the world something of grace and show the world something of patience and show, the, show your parents something of humility and show your parents something of priority. The priorities in a room with an autistic child just change. You cannot maintain any focal point that you may have had before that child walked in. It has to change the moment that kid comes in the room. And they'll make sure there's the right level of chaos if necessary to make sure that that priority level changes. And I think that in the end, we may find out in the context of a couple hundred year history of humanity in the future that we took the turning point. We made that final turning point, that final transformative thing because the autistic children could not be programmed with the former paradigm. They did not understand the emotional program. They had not the lexicon that kept us all locked down in a brainwashed state of fight or flight response and, and lack of creativity. And they forced a new transformation of creativity. And it was because their brains refused the old program. And they were there spiritually to show up through any kind of crisis and, and degree of suffering that may be on the journey. And they had to show up to do that walk. And they were willing to do that walk. And for that, humanity finally aligned itself with a nature that was much greater than itself with a much more divine design than humanity could have ever found for its own transportation or technology or communication technology or information tech or whatever we've got going, it pales in comparison to the brilliance of the mycelium within the soil and its intelligence of bringing fiber optic systems of communication through vast farmland through these mycelial networks. And they can not only passage the information, they can also follow that with resources and they're passaging minerals over hundreds of miles to places of deficiencies within soil systems to repair mother earth for that's what their, their real purpose is, is to heal her and let her do life abundantly again. A tree falls in the woods and I just saw this incredible genetic study that has to be shared is a single tree falls in the woods and one year later they can track 100,000 species living within the, the decaying mass of that tree. 100,000 species out of one. That's the kind of generative capacity of Mother Nature. Humans are not here as some sort of manifest destiny of life. Life called in an opportunity, an invitation to participate. We misunderstood that invitation. We corrupted that invitation. We destroyed the freaking party. We are the ultimate party crashers when it comes to life. And so we have an opportunity to reset. And I think our autistic children and our children with cancer are patiently showing us the face of our mistakes. Mm. Thank you so much for that. I'm curious because you've mentioned it a few times. I heard you talk about our sort of current paradigm of pro or anti-vaccine and how it's like the wrong conversation, that it's just, just not even really relevant. So Mike and I have been a little bit active locally in the conversation about vaccines because it came up in the state of Maine earlier this year. It was voted to uh, every kid from we, we got rid of the philosophical exemptions. exemptions. So I'm so to go curious. To in Maine, you have to be vaccinated fully. Yes. And we were speaking up to keep people being able to have a choice about what they inject in their bodies and their children's bodies. And so I'm just curious, like, why did you say that pro and anti-vax is just like not even, it's not even really relevant? Like, what is the paradigm actually about immunity 
Yeah. Yeah. The, the new paradigm is we depend on, on all of those microbes for our health. And so to be for or against them is, is an old concept. They literally are, we're because of them. We're not for or against them. We're because of them. And so that's the kind of paradigm shift that I'm really hoping to engender is that our scientists and our physicians need to simply start asking different questions. And they have. They've been asking different questions, getting different answers for 30 years. But you go to the NIH or the CDC or WHO, you're going to get a very old narrative, a very old story. And they love showing that, oh, the alternative to vaccination is anti-vaccine. And the reason why I, I don't like the anti-vax movement in concept is because being anti-anything is a zero-sum game. You, you can't actually be anti. You have to be something. And so what I'm trying to help the anti-vax world realize is we need to be pro-immunity. Pro-life was a very smart move. Don't be anti-abortion, be pro-life. That was a smart you know, marketing decision by that movement and, and action. We need that kind of mentality. We're not anti-vax. We are pro-immunity. And we are going to ask questions for our children that are, how are you making this child's immune system better? Because I'm looking at the data and it says here that the military study done with influenza vaccine shows that my child is more likely to get coronavirus if I give them a flu vaccine. Okay, well, why is that? So how do I, instead of you know, injecting all this stuff, how do I create an immune system that would be in balance with all of that? And so they could be in harmony with every virus, 10 to the 31 viruses, before the child can even make an immune system, they're in balance with this virome. So what is that? Oh, oh, there's something called innate immunity. Well, what's innate immunity? That's the immune system that actually happens to create balance with viruses long before an antibody ever kicks in. Well, how do I support the innate immunity of my child? Well, the answers are to support healthy boundaries first. The very first section of innate immunity is healthy skin and healthy gut lining. Well, how do you do that? you get away with Roundup, which destroys the tight junctions that are the, the, the innate immunity. Roundup literally was the beginning of the destruction of the innate immune system, making us prone to, to virus-related you know, symptoms of any sort. It turns out we've had 12,800 pandemics of viruses since 1976 debut of, uh, of Roundup. We opened up the floodgates of dysfunctional relationship to viruses the moment we eliminated the front line of the innate immune system by adding Roundup to our food and water systems. And so I want you guys to be pro-immunity. And I would love for you guys to go into your community with a message of, we're going to make our children more healthy and more resilient than any children before them, and certainly far healthier than their classmates that continue their current toxic lifestyles and then get a vaccine. We're going to do something dramatic. We're going to prove that our kids are healthier at the immune system level without the vaccines than with them. That's a strong position. And I so that's that. where I would love to move this movement to. Let's not be anti-vax. Let's be pro-immunity. Let's prove how healthy and resilient our children are. So if you want to jump on the bandwagon, you can go to my website. There's a little banner you can click on. I think it might be on my link tree on my Instagram too. And it's a change.org petition for child health immunity and vaccination, where we start to ask those deeper questions of what does, what does innate immunity look like in children? How do we foster a healthy relationship between our children and the microbiome and in fact the virome to create really vibrant health? And uh, not again, we don't have an epidemic of infectious disease in our children. We have an epidemic of autoimmune disease in our children. Their immune system is dysfunctioning, not at the cost of viral infections, at the cost of destroying their own bodies with that immune system that's now so confused. And so we need to stop the confusion and really address the real chronic disease sides of immune dysfunction, which are things like autoimmune disease and cancer, and not any problem with a, a coronavirus. Yeah. 
we'll make sure to link that petition Mm -hmm. in the show notes for sure about this episode. Okay. So this is all so excellent. I want to make sure that we get in the next one that I wanted to ask, which is. Go ahead. I have. You go. All right. (laughs) Just based off what you said about Roundup, I recently saw there was a lawsuit that I think it was Bayer has to pay $10 billion due to, I didn't read everything, but I it was like a headline I read due to determining Roundup was bad, right? And caused these issues to happen. Can you briefly describe, like, what's the money situation here? You know, if we're paying out, I mean, okay, rational conversation. I have to pay $10 billion fine because what my product did to people. So the rational mind is like, that product should just be pulled, right? Like, why are we keep using it? So like, we hear about the who, you know, like we hear about in the news in the United States, Trump's pulling out of the who, Trump's pulling out of this. And then like, then we have Gates and then we have Fauci and then we have all of this stuff. The CDC. The CDC. And like how, like who is actually, besides Zach Bush and all the podcasts you're on, like from a governmental oversight committee, like who's actually looking out for us as humans or is there no one in the government? No, no, no. I don't think there's anybody in the government uh, that knows how to look out for you. It's too complicated. It'd be ludicrous for us to expect a legislator to know how to, to deal with 10 to the 31 viruses in the air. That's ludicrous. There's no way that, that some legislator knows how to create health. So the reason why we see these draconian, ridiculous situations where you can, you have to wear a mask into the restaurant, but as soon as you sit down, you take that mask off, no problem. But if you stand up to go pee, you sure as hell better be wearing that mask. Like, I mean, it is so ludicrous now. Like it's like so intolerable that at the intellectual level to go outside. My poor wife has to deal with me. I, I'm getting a little bit better. Like I, I'm she's keeping me on a, a very high dose of kombucha or something like that. Just keep my microbiome rich just so I don't lose my shit. But it's very difficult, honestly, to, to be in the world right now for this misperception that the government is going to protect us. And, you know, for the record, cause I'm about to say something that everybody's going to be like, Oh, he's politically motivated. I, I'm an independent. I have voted on both sides of the aisle over and over again throughout my life. And I'll typically vote a single, on a single ticket for different sides of the aisle because I see strengths in all of the voices. And I don't think we, think we have a democracy until we see, see balance within that ecosystem, just as we would see with any immune system. If we don't have the yin and the yang together, if we don't have the microbiome represented thoroughly in our ideas, we will suffer just as much as we do biologically when we move into the psychological and, and the philosophical and so for us to have, you know, political balance, we need to hear all the voices. And of course, there's no variety of voices. The, the common narrative is so tightly controlled right now. But, you know, when we back up for a moment and ask, is there anybody for human health? The mechanism that the government has been handed is unfortunately the healthcare system. And so the healthcare system, anybody can back up and say the American health system is currently clocking in at $3.7 trillion a year. That rate has been been going at an extraordinary growth rate of kind of six to 8% since I was, you know, a chief resident back in like 2004 or five, I actually held a big think tank of CEOs of, of insurance companies in 2004 and five, because we had just entered something called the death spiral of insurance. And so by 05, it was clear that the endpoint for private insurance in the United States was 2009. We could not survive past that without bankruptcy in the entire system. 
And so I, I was pointing together these think tanks and ultimately I, I built a university-wide think tank of, I wanted multi-specialties there. So I invited sociologists, ballerinas, like everybody at the university come talk about healthcare. Like the doctors are not figuring this stuff out. Like we, we need business minds. We need sociologists. We need anthropologists to, to ask this question about health. I was very much pharmaceutically minded. I didn't think I was anti-anything. I, I was just trying to figure out what's going to survive 2009. How do we push it past that? The death spiral of insurance happens when 1% of the population drops out for every 1% increase in costs. And that's where we had hit in 2005. We were actually growing at 6 to 8% increases in costs by then. And so we were seeing 6 to 8% of the population drop out. And of course, if you're going to drop your insurance, the one that's most likely to drop is one that's not using it. And so you're like paying this ridiculous premium. You're like, why am I paying $400 a month again for something I haven't ever been to the doctor? I went like once because I had a hangnail or something like So the hangnail people drop out. And so they stop paying, which means that you consolidate the sicker people. And now the cost of care just went up again for that. So that's the death spiral of insurance is when you your pool becomes concentrative, meaning that every year the thing you're insuring against becomes more and more concentrated at a higher and higher prevalence within the condition because people who are not having your condition are dropping out. And so by 2009, that was going to become catastrophic. And so it didn't matter what president came in next, we were going to have an American Affordable Care Act, and that had to be passed. And so everybody credited Obama, but it could have been Nixon. It, it just doesn't matter. You can put anybody president there and they are going to be told such a dire story that you are literally, you know, 18 months from the end of American healthcare unless you put this act into place. The act, by the way, did nothing to improve nutrition, nothing to improve, you know, intrinsic health of our population, nothing to shift. All it did was say, everybody has to sign up for insurance again so that our insurance companies don't go bankrupt. That was the entire Affordable Care Act. And it's still like the, the feather in the cap of the Obama administration. And I love the Obama as well. I love Michelle, at least. And I have a great respect for, for our president as well. I, amazing man. And Michelle, I think, is an extraordinary character. If we all walked around with that kind of character, we would be an extraordinary society. So huge respect for these people. But in the end, they achieved only what had to be done by the pharmaceutical companies and the, and the insurance companies to secure their position that was going bankrupt. And so that's why that thing happened. And so why everybody was freaking out so dramatically when Trump starts rolling back the Affordable Care Act is they're like, well, we're going to be on the ropes again. We have to do something drastic if we're going to support this thing. And we can't get that thing to happen under a Trump administration. And so what are we going to do to infuse trillions of dollars into a healthcare system to buoy us up before we lose the integrity of this system again. And so we created a pandemic story that just infused literally trillions. We printed $2 trillion and, and we continue to print more. We handed 500 billion, remember, $500 billion were handed to random pharmaceutical companies to start making vaccines that nobody thinks they're gonna ever work because we needed a huge infusion of cash to stabilize a system that the president just pulled the plug on saying, I don't care if you guys go bankrupt, you guys need to get your house together. We're not gonna keep paying this thing. We're not gonna force Americans to pay into a healthcare system. I have a huge love for all my liberal democratic friends in San Francisco and LA and New York and all this, but I have something to tell you, which is you are playing into the hands of the pharmaceutical companies to guarantee that every American has to keep paying the pharmaceutical hospital medical you know, system more money by saying that your number one thing now 
which by the way, at the presidential debates with 16 people on stage in the democratic you know, race for the presidency, every one of them in that, I think it was the second or third one because it was like 64 initially, but when we were down to 16, they all stood on that stage and every last one of them was at the very last question, which was the one thing that you're going to achieve. They all felt compelled and necessary after the first person said it, they knew they all had to say it, which was the ecology is our number one thing. We have to address climate change. We need to address the, the collapse of the ecosystem. To the last one, every single one. And I was just like dumbfounded. I was like, finally, finally, somebody's saying that we should look at the relationships between soil, water, and air and humans and get at that. That's the number one presidential thing. And then somehow between that and a new pandemic and today's thing, the number one thing on Biden's list now is we need universal health care. Well, you're damn straight you do because you're going to have a bankrupt insurance company in the first 18 months of your, preg- your pregnancy that we would call a presidency. And so we have got to make sure you birth something quick and it's going to have to be universal health care. And that's number one now. Everything they tell you, every splash in the Democratic thing, Nobody's talking about planet Earth anymore. Nobody cares about the global warming. It's all universal health care. If you are going to vote a Democratic ticket because you hate Trump, you are anti-Trump. What are you pro? What are you really pro for? So if you're going to vote anything, I want you to think about what do you really want the future to look like? And realize that it's not going to come from that ticket. And so your responsibility is to go build the future. Do not vote Democrat and feel like you did any service to your country. You screwed us up deeper because you just put us in a deep, locked relationship with universal health care coming down the pike to make sure that we all become fully dependent on a pharmaceutical model that can be mandated at a federal level for the first time in our country, federal mandates, which is exactly what they're setting us up for, for this mandatory vaccine that they keep saying isn't going to work very well, so you're probably going to have to get three, and then you're going to have to have a booster every year, and that sounds a hell of a lot like this flu shot that we have to get every year, which has never been shown to, to reduce the amount of flu we get. And so we are in this relationship, and so do not let go of your sense of responsibility the moment you check that box. You cannot outsource this responsibility. If you showed up right now with 7.8 billion souls on the planet with children suffering at a rate that has never been seen before, you have a responsibility to show up and make the future that we want. And that's what we need to do. Voting is not going to change that future. There is no cabinet. There's no you know, agenda there that looks good. It all looks like more entrenched special interests with a high-speed slam dunk for federal mandates for you know, global health care. And it sounds good, sounds altruistic, sounds like a Democratic ticket. But the whole reason we flipped the, the whole rationale of Democrat versus Republican, the, the whole red states used to be blue. The, the Southern Democrat was the whole thing. My grandfather worked for Eleanor Roosevelt. And, you know, he spent all that time going down through Tennessee with the soup lines, with the, the New Deal and all the philanthropic efforts to get us out of the Great Depression and all of that. They were all Southern Democrats. You go to Trump territory today, that was our democratic stronghold. Those people didn't change. The platforms did. And the platform changed from help your neighbor, which was the attitude of of the deep grandparents that I grew from. My great-grandmother grew up in West Virginia and all that. And I'll tell you, in coal country or in farming country, which was my other side of the family in Kentucky and all that, you took care of your neighbor. And that's what it meant to be a Southern Democrat is we take care of ourselves, we take care of our own, and we take care of our communities. Suddenly, that subtly got shifted in the 1970s to we got to take care of everybody. 
so we created this kind of socialism kind of concept. And so we developed Medicaid and Medicare coming out of the 60s and all of that. And so the 60s and 70s marched towards this subtle message of everybody needs an even playing field. Everybody deserves the same thing. Everything that became the democratic thing. And that was obnoxious to the core in, our, in the center of our country. Because if you look at the Democrats today, which are in these strongholds of Miami-Dade County, New York, LA, San Francisco, you drive 30 minutes outside of any of those towns and you are in red territory. The difference between blue and red right now is are you making anything? Mm. My bet is if you're voting blue and you're in one of those cities, you don't build anything. You actually make money mobilizing money and that's it. You move money around. You're in marketing, you're in advertising, you're in sales. You're not making anything. You're certainly not producing the food that's going into the world. You're certainly not producing the oil that would drive the car to work. You're not certainly producing the electricity that fuels your Tesla as you're cruising down the road feeling so good about yourself. This is a real crisis that as Democrats, if we want a liberal ticket, we aren't doing anything real. We've been handed a false sense of identity, a false sense of participation in life by insulating ourselves by layers and layers of wealth and layers and layers of comfort and convenience such that we don't do anything anymore. And so when Trump wins again, which I am amazed that I can even say that sentence because I think it's going to happen, it's because we clumped a bunch of people that don't do anything anymore, but to talk bad about the people that are actually doing everything. They're growing our crops. They're literally harvesting the strawberries that are on your fancy little beverage there. They're doing all of that stuff. They're making the oil that runs our industries. They're keeping our economy alive. And we damn them every day for being Trump supporters or being red or being clueless or being backwards, when in fact, they're the only ones doing any real work. And we sequester ourselves away. And in case you didn't keep up with politics in the United States, we don't have a popular vote. We have an electoral vote, which means that if we go all move to the same seven counties, we're never going to win an election. And that's somehow appropriate to me that we should never run a country or win an election if we're not making anything. Mm. There was a time when the Democrats of, you know, Detroit built every car, everything. Those are Republicans building the cars now. We switched the platform. We need to lose the parties and act for a constitutional leadership again. We need a constitutional leadership in this country that would understand the concepts of freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of health. That was Benjamin Ross that had the insights with the constitution that they should write in health freedom. Because Benjamin warned, he said, if you do not write this into the constitution that there's health freedom, then there will someday become a group of rich individuals that will come to own the health industry and they will distribute it per their preference. It's exactly what's happening today. Benjamin Rush saw this coming down the pike some 200 years ago when that document was written. We have an a incredible, incredible national document in the form of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Those documents are divinely appointed, if you ask me, because I have not seen any wisdom pour out of humans like that since. And we ignore that every single day in the way in which we are willing to be in these, you know, sequestered in our wealth pockets, not doing anything real. And I include myself in that. I am so humbled by the farmers that I work with at any time with Farmers Football. And you go out on a farm, good God, talk about some back-breaking hard labor and love for the land, man. They just want to make this land sing and they want to create beauty out of it and a bounty for their, 
the world around them. They want to feed the world. That's what they want to do. And they were handed a crappy toolbox to do that by the chemical industries. But if you give them a different paradigm and you, you reward them for the hard work they do to create the future we want and the food we want, they are more than willing to do that all day long. They're not against you know, poisoning the planet. They, they, they don't want to poison the planet. They, they're not against you know, movement towards an organic food system. It's just been stacked. The cards are stacked against them such that it's almost impossible for them to make that move without you. You need to know your farmer. You need to be so close to that farmer that they start to make money from the food they grow again so that you can have a participatory conversation as to what kind of food you want and reward them for producing that. And so if you really want to be a good Democrat right now, you will leave your city, you will drive 30 to 60 minutes out of town, and you will meet somebody who's making something real. And you will become to, per, you know, to participate in that community. Don't just go out to Yosemite. Go out into the, to the communities and stop by and go look at some hardworking people that are, are picking your food right now in the midst of some of the worst forest fires in history. They're out there in the smoke picking strawberries that just got sprayed three hours ago with 16 different toxins that are going to cause cancer in, in them and their children. And they're doing that because they have no choice but to keep moving forward. And you damn them as if they are idiots or as if they are somehow, you know, don't have the, the political insight or altruism that somehow you have because you're, you're a liberal minded Democrat. And I'm not, again, I'm picking on the Democrats right now because I think that we're on our high horse because we're so anti-Trump. Yep. And we need to just look at this situation and be like, what the hell are we really voting for? What the hell are we really I doing? I totally agree. This whole idea of what are we for as opposed to what are we against is so powerful. So in our final moments here, I would love to know, and you touched on it with your work with Farmer's Footprint, like, okay, so someone's listening and they're like, whoa, <laughs> this is a whole, like, this is a lot of information that's different than what I thought. And maybe they're, you know, maybe they're like, uh-oh, okay. But I've heard you speak so many times about the amount of hope that's present right now. And so my final question really is like, okay. I have so, one more. Oh, you do? Yeah. But we're not going to have time. Just, I'm going to fight leave. you on this. No, no, no. Can you leave me one? Yeah. I'll be brief. Yeah. Believe it or not. It's the one I asked you earlier that you said was the last question. Or yeah. That no, that's the last question. Okay. This is the one, which is what are we, what should we do? Like, what should we be yeah. focused on right now? You said meeting your farmer. I'm proud to say that I have salsa danced with my farmer. <laughs> Whoa, taking it to a totally different I level. I brought him I into my that. 30th birthday to surprise me because Mike doesn't really dance, but our farmer does. <laughs> <laughs> that is good job outsourcing the dancing. I like that. But beyond that, like, okay, what should we be focused on? How can we be part of the solution given that obviously like the government is not going to handle it for us? Yeah, so we have to move, you know, soil, water, and air to our first priority list. This whole 1% for the planet was just 99% too short. We literally have to be all in on planet Earth. We are looking at the sixth grade extinction. We're losing one species every 20 minutes. Or it turns out by the record of the virome, there is more viral information to new adaptive capacity, new biodiversity than ever in history for what we've done. Every time we see a great extinction, life comes back more abundant with more intelligence. That's fascinating to me. Earth didn't struggle back over 60 million years to recreate the dinosaurs. Earth came back with more intelligence of the mammals and the extraordinary. And again, we wouldn't have mammals if not for the viruses that moved us forward from reptile 
to mammal. And the way in which those viruses were formed was under extreme stress. Under stress, the virome started to produce more options for adaptation. We are the result of an adaptive, intelligent system of life on Earth. We need to align ourselves with that very quickly because if we do, not only do we prevent the extinction of ourselves and, and 90% of life on Earth, we get to see the rebirth. And that's what I am here to hope for. What if we got to see over the next 200 years, a vitality and biodiversity of plant life, animal life, insects that we have literally never seen before on the planet over the next few million years unfolds life in some vastly beautiful fashion that we can't even imagine. But even in the next 200 years, we could see a biodiversification of soil systems and plant life and a resilience and nutrient density in our food that will heal our children from the toxicity that we have set into motion. And that's what we see in the lab every day. And it's what we see on the farms every day is biology heals faster than it destroys. It is more rapid in its, its, its reconstruction than it was in its deconstruction. And it's logarithmically faster. And so if it takes you 20 years to form a cancer, you can reverse that same underlying process in a matter of months. And so it's very exciting just how extreme this is. You can poison a piece of land for 60 years. And if you just do the right thing for nine months, you see life return and a resilience and a beauty that hasn't been witnessed in generations. And so this is the speed at which adaptation and this pandemic of life happens. If you want to be a part of pandemic of life and you want to be a part of pandemic of hope, then you're going to align yourself with Mother Earth. And so you need to think about your daily lives. What are you eating right now? What are you drinking right now? What, how do you drive and where do you drive and why do you drive there? What kind of work do you do? Is that really life-giving? Do you feel infused with joy in life at the end of an eight-hour workday? If you don't feel more excited for what you're doing at the end of that, then you must be doing the wrong thing. And so start to be very strict with yourself. And your expectation is not on some sort of productivity. Your expectation is on joy. Align yourself with the joy in your spirit and, and the purpose of your soul. And it's going to align itself naturally with the biologic systems of soil, water, and air. You may not know the first thing about farming, but as soon as you start to look for joy in your life, you're going to find out that it includes being barefoot outside, maybe on a beach, maybe in the backyard. And so then suddenly it's like, well, why could just plant a seed? You're not even going to know you became a farmer. And I'm excited that when this pandemic kicked in, for the very first time in generations, everybody ran out and bought seeds. Mm -hmm. I love it. We bought all the hardware stores out of seeds. And we did the right thing subconsciously. We said we need to get back. And that was before anybody was thinking about immune system or anything else. Everybody simply saw toilet paper disappear. And they're like, I should plant a garden. <laughs> <laughs> what? Like, how did you make that connection? Because I've been screaming at you for 10 years to plant a garden. You didn't do it. And you ran out of toilet paper. We planted a garden. Like, that's <laughs> bizarre. But that's exactly what happened is this sudden realization of, oh, my God, I have a 5,000-mile supply chain for my toilet paper that just got disrupted. Well, what does that mean for my meat supply? Oh my God, I need to go buy out all the meat. So five days after the toilet paper, we buy out all the meat thinking we're, and we did run out of that for a moment. It's like, where's my meat coming from? Wait a second, there's a hundred cows in a single hamburger because we rely on one factory to produce all this at once. Like that's disgusting. And oh, 18 million pounds just got recalled of beef because of E. coli, 18 million pounds. Like what are we doing? Like, where is this coming from? And why is the food system so sick? And how come we're sick if it all came together? And so we needed a pandemic of fear to create the pandemic of hope. And that's how humans are. We will refuse to see the truth until we're slammed up against a fear paradigm. And so as, as frustrated as I get at the, the media and the common narrative and the CDC and all these other structures, 
I have to thank them for creating the catalyst for change. And I think it backfired on them. I think that there was certainly in some camps, a huge impetus to create a huge, you know, economic, you know, benefit to a very few people and, but it backfired. We see more pro immune system people than ever in history. And there's more questions about vaccines than we've ever seen in history, not because they have a vaccine on the market, but because we watch their narrative hide a bunch of semi half truths and create this kind of fear paradigm towards us. And it's just, they've got, they put all their cards on the table and they weren't ready with a good story. And so they misfired over and over again and they've contradicted themselves over and over again. None of the science measures up anywhere. And so we need to take advantage of this opportunity and create a pandemic of hope that our children can be healthier than us if we do the right things in these next few years. Thank you. Thank you. And the final questions based off, you just alluded to it a little bit. Parents are about to send their kids back to school and get this crazy school schedule. So your advice that you're telling your own kids, I know you have older kids, but like, what are you talking to your kids about these days as a dad and the message, like, do you have a message that you've been telling parents as they've been navigating these waters? You know, that's, that's an incredibly tough question. I think it, in the end, where we run the most risk is when we tell our children anything. And if we're not listening and watching and witnessing as parents, we're bound to screw it up. And so I want you to watch your kids this evening around the dinner table or whatever it is. And I want you to think about the conversation we just had and ask yourself, is my child's lifestyle got them aligned with soil, water, and air? Is my child aligned with the biology that would support them into a future? And if you're watching their behavior and you suddenly become concerned that there's nothing that they're doing that has them aligned with soil, water, and air, then you probably have a vulnerable household. And you need to realign that. And you can do that very quickly. You can simply, you know, create a, you know, zero tolerance for screens on weekends or something like this and get out in nature and make it cool. Make it an adventure. When was the last time you ran your hands beneath the, the leaves of ferns in a deep forest? It's a crazy weird feeling. Uh, it's beautiful. When was the last time you ran in a high mountain meadow? Have you ever? Have you ever taken your boots off? in that meadow and let those tundras touch your toes because there's an intelligence there. There's an experience there waiting for you, you to have. And, and mother earth will tell you something beautiful that she actually loves you and she cares for you. And she has tolerance to your, your ignorance and, and to your disconnect. And she's got a huge invitation for you to step back into her and reconnect. And so as a parent, are you in the way? Are you putting a bunch of expectations on your child to finish their AP classwork so they can get into some university that's going to go teach them the common paradigm? Or are you going to take them out of school because you suddenly got licensed to and you're going to start to work from home and you're create a homeschool co-op? Or are you going to, if that sounds like an idiocy, are you going to engage them on one of these you know, burgeoning education platforms and they're taking all their curriculum on a daily basis from professors all over the world? And when are you traveling as a family and where are you traveling to? It's gotten really cheap to travel globally because there's house swaps. And so go on houseswap.com or whatever it is and switch for a house in Tuscany. Hell, Italy's nice. Go there for a month free. The Italian family will enjoy, enjoy your house somewhere in, in the Midwest, wherever you are. So switch some houses around. Share. Let's create a barter system again and let's go back to an economy of value where we value human experience and human interaction over digital experiences. And in Icaria, Greece, they are one of the blue zones on the planet and they all live over a hundred years, they tend to, you know? And so 
I had this dinner with this couple from Icaria and I did this beautiful toast at the end about the microbiome and resilience of food and the love they pour into their food. And the guy listened very patiently and said, you're completely wrong. And I was devastated because I thought I had nailed it. And he said that uh, the reason we all live over 100 years has absolutely nothing to do with our food. The reason we all live over 100 years age in Korea is because we all know to set an extra chair at the dinner table every night, hoping that somebody new shows up that we've never met. And we never ask each other, what did you eat last night? But we always ask, who did you eat with last night? And that was a sad, sad lesson for me to learn because I had not done that well. I had been teaching nutrition and, and isolated in my home with my little nuclear family far too long. And I had not been inviting people into my home enough. And so tonight, watch your children. Tomorrow night, invite somebody new to the table. Thank you, Zach. This is amazing. Thank you. We're so grateful. Everybody listening, go to Zach Bush MD to learn all the things farmers footprint. Dot Ion. Com. Oh yeah. ZachBushMD.com. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ion Biome, all the things. We're so grateful for you and your work. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate y'all. What if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you were doing the right thing at the right time in your business? For 28 days, I'm hosting a free experience called Right Thing, Right Time. And during it, you will do a simple, incredible data tracking practice that is going to help you align your business and your productivity and workflow with the innate intelligence of your body and nature to get into peak flow so you can kick indecision to the curb, work less, and get better results. You can learn all about it and join us over at katenorthrup.com forward slash R-T-R-T. Again, it's a 28-day free experience called Right Thing, Right Time, and you can join us at katenorthrop.com forward slash R-T-R-T.